We're taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming to talk about some pressing issues that are affecting our world. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about racism. Last week, we talked about the end of the world. And this week, we're going to be talking about deconstructionism. As you probably know, to deconstruct something means to take it apart. And in the realm of philosophy, it refers to the process by which a person significantly changes or gives up their belief system. In the context of Christianity, it refers to the process of someone giving up their faith and moving toward a different belief system such as universalism, pluralism, agnosticism, or atheism. In the last few years, there have been numerous high-profile deconstructions within the Christian faith, such as the husband-wife musical duo Gunger, pastor and author Joshua Harris, who famously wrote the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye and who actually deconstructed while living here in Vancouver, former Hillsong and Hillsong United worship leader and songwriter Marty Sampson. I've led many of his worship songs in church before. YouTube celebrities, Rhett and Link, whose Good Mythical Morning is one of the most popular channels in the world. And then within the last few weeks, Christian band Hawk Nelson frontman John Steingard. People are complex. People are complex. Everybody has a different story. And who we are today is informed largely by the journey that brought us to this point. So it's impossible for me to address this subject uh, with the appropriate nuance in just one week. What I can do is hopefully raise some important things for us to just think about and consider. So if you're watching this and you're in the process of wrestling with doubts about your faith, or if you've left your faith, please don't be offended if I speak in generalizations due to the time constraints of this medium. My goal is not to be dismissive of anybody's individual story or pain or journey or doubts, but I'm going to have to speak broadly in order just to get through this in the allotted time. So give me some grace with that, if you would. I think a logical place to start this discussion is with the question, why do people deconstruct? Why do they leave the Christian faith? How does that happen? What are the reasons? And when you get into people's stories, I think you'll find that the overwhelming majority of those who deconstruct will classify their reasons as intellectual. And under the umbrella of this term will come reasons like, there are too many things about Christianity that don't make sense. Christianity has been disproved by science and is therefore in conflict with science and progress. The evidence for the Bible being true is weak, or observable reality disproves the existence of a loving God as described by the Bible. At this point, I have to raise a point that I know some people are going to find offensive. There's no way around it. So I'm just going to ask that if you're offended, stick with me for the next five minutes so that you can at least hear my reasoning. Because if we're primarily concerned with truth, the question has to be, is this true? The question cannot be, is this offensive? Because there's no connection between whether or not something is offensive and whether or not something is true. There's no relationship between those two things. If we could make a pie chart that represented all of the adults in our country, and this pie chart represented the number of people who make major life decisions based on facts and logic, and the number of people who make those decisions based on other reasons and motivations. What do you think that pie chart would look like? 
What do you think it would look like? Do you think most people make their major life decisions based on facts and logic, or is it primarily driven by other things like emotional reasons, instant gratification, prestige, ease, the amount of change or training that would be required? What do you think? I think the percentage of people motivated by facts and logic would be much, much smaller than we think it would. My personality is an Enneagram type one. And if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's a method of describing different personalities and their sort of default motivations. My personality is classified as a reformer, which means I have a, I have a fierce commitment to what I believe is right based upon my understanding of the facts. My default personality assumes that everybody wants to do the right thing. Everybody wants to do what's reasonable and logical. And the only reason they don't is because they don't know. They don't know the truth. They don't know the facts. So if I see something that is wrong or somebody behaving in a way that's not logical, my default personality is I want to I help you <laughs> by telling you the facts. And can I tell you from my experience being a reformer, most people are not primarily motivated by facts and logic. If we're friends and our friendship has come to an end, it's probably because I shared something with you that you didn't want to hear. My motivations were right. They were altruistic. I wanted good for you. I wanted good for your life. But my personality is just missing that filter that says, Jeff, even though this is true, they're not going to want to hear this. And so I work on that all the time, but that's, that's my default wiring. And so I can tell you this as well. If we pulled out another pie chart and I said, now, guys, this pie chart represents the percentage of adults who believe they make their major life decisions based on facts and logic. What do you think that pie chart would look like? I think we all know, don't we? It'd be one color because 100% of adults think that they make their major life decisions based on facts and logic, right? Everybody thinks they're reasonable. Everybody thinks they're logical. Everybody thinks they're rational. But we know that they're not. We know that's that, not the way that most people make their major life decisions. And to compound the problem, we find it incredibly offensive when someone suggests that perhaps we didn't make a decision based on facts and logic, don't we? The problem is obvious. Most people, most of the time, don't make major life decisions based on facts and logic. They make them based on other factors. But they believe that they make their decisions based on facts and logic, and they find the suggestion they don't highly offensive. So if I say something like, you know, in my opinion, based on observation, 99% of people who deconstruct their Christian faith are not doing it for intellectual reasons, that's offensive, right? And so I want to propose that a good question for us to ask is, how can we reasonably determine if someone has left the faith for intellectual reasons or for some other reasons? How, what process can we come up with that will help us determine a person's reasons and motivations for departing the Christian faith? How would we do that? I suggest that we start by looking at their stated issues with the Christian faith. So let's look at what they say their reasons are for leaving the Christian faith, and let's evaluate a few different things. Firstly, 
Do their questions have reasonable answers? Are there good answers to their questions? Secondly, how hard is it to find those reasonable answers? Thirdly, what is their response when those reasonable answers are presented to them? And then fourthly, connected to that third question, what does their response reveal about the current authority governing their life? In other words, what is their response to the information, to the reasonable data, tell you about their motivation? Let me explain further. By way of example, when John Steingard posted his deconstruction announcement to Instagram, part of his post listed these issues that he had with Christianity. He said, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Can he not do anything about it? Does he choose not to? Is the evil in the world a result of his desire to give us free will? Okay, then, well, what about famine and disease and floods and all the suffering that isn't caused by humans and our free will? If God is loving, why does he send people to hell? Why does God seem so pissed off in most of the Old Testament and then all of a sudden he's a loving father in the New Testament? Why does he say not to kill but then instruct Israel to turn around and kill men and women and children to take the promised land? Why does God let Job suffer horrible things just to win a bet with Satan? Why does he tell Abraham to kill his son, more killing again, and then basically say, just kidding, that was a test? Why does Jesus have to die for our sins, more killing again? If God can do anything, can't he forgive without someone dying? I mean, my parents taught me to forgive people. Nobody dies in that scenario. And here's what hit me when I read John's post. Firstly, I know for a fact that all of those questions, all of those issues have reasonable, good answers, good explanations. And I actually know them all off the top of my head. I didn't even need to take a book off a shelf. I also know for a fact that if you Google any of those issues or questions, you're going to find those reasonable answers on the first page of search results. And so here's what that tells us. It tells us that there are many believers who don't know that good answers exist for the big questions about Christianity. When Marty Sampson posted his deconstruction to Instagram, he said, How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible so full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Now again, that's flat out untrue when Marty says that no one talks about it. There's an entire discipline, an entire field of study that merges philosophy and theology together for the express purpose of dealing with questions and challenges to the Christian faith. It's called apologetics, and the internet has tons of articles, research papers, videos, and messages that answer all these questions and many, many more than you could ever possibly think of. We're going to come back to why it's such a big deal that so many believers don't even know that apologetics exists, but you can see why someone might find it overwhelming if they began to be confronted by all these questions and they had never heard anybody talk about them, never heard anyone address these issues. It would be devastating to your faith. It would seem like it's crumbling before your very eyes. Secondly, posts like, John and Marty's leave only 
two options when it comes to the Google search that I mentioned. Uh, Either they didn't do one or they're ignoring the data when they did. Most of you are probably familiar with things like confirmation bias and the echo chamber phenomenon. Basically, we all have inherent biases that naturally cause us to gravitate towards sources of information that confirm the beliefs we already hold or desire to hold. That's just how we are unless we're intentional about gathering information from both sides of an issue. If we're not intentional about seeking it out, we'll just naturally drift towards things that confirm our existing point of view. And what this looks like in deconstruction is a person Googling something like reasons Christianity is false, taking that information and then stopping, stopping because they found some information that reinforces the belief they would like to hold or the belief that they would like to switch to holding. But if you're actually interested in truth, if truth is the real goal, you have to Google the counter-argument too. And then you have to Google the counter-argument to the counter-argument. And you go back and forth looking for answers from both sides until you have all of the evidence and then you can weigh it and make an informed judgment on the issue. Let me be frank, but I think very, very fair. If you are unwilling to put forth the effort to even do a Google search about your intellectual concerns with the Christian faith, then you cannot claim with any measure of integrity to be seeking truth. If you're not even willing to put forth the effort to do a Google search, you cannot claim to be seeking truth or on a journey because the word seek is a verb. It means to look for something, to search for something. If the only searching you're doing is in your own mind, with your own thoughts, then you are not seeking truth in earnest. This is the only fill-in on your outline today. Write this down. Being a seeker of truth means actively seeking the truth. Let me say it again. Being a seeker of truth means actively seeking the truth through reading, research, examining the evidence on both sides, etc. It kills me when I talk to someone and they say, you know, oh, I'm on a spiritual journey, I'm a seeker. And I ask them, like, well, well, what are the core beliefs of Islam? What are the core beliefs of Judaism? What are the core teachings of Buddhism, Christianity? If you haven't even Googled the basic teachings of the world's biggest religions... I mean, how can you possibly claim to be seeking, actively looking for the truth? It just means you think about it in your own mind a little bit. Now, you're free to do what you want, but don't delude yourself. You're not actively seeking the truth unless you're actively seeking the truth. If you're willing to reconstruct your entire belief system, without doing a Google search, I think it's fair. I think it's reasonable to suggest that perhaps you're being motivated by something other than intellectual issues. That's just the honest truth. It's a fair conclusion. If you have done a Google search, but you keep repeating 
talking points or issues with the Christian faith that the Google search gave you answers to, then the only explanation is that you're just ignoring the data. And that also serves as clear evidence that that perhaps your motivation is not primarily intellectual. Perhaps there's something else going on. Again, that's a reasonable and fair conclusion. And that's the third question I suggested. What is the response when reasonable answers are presented? And I find this to be the most revealing of a person's motivations. Because when you present reasonable data, when you present a good answer and the person just says, eh, and dismisses it rather than addressing the argument that it makes, again, it reveals that it's not the intellect that needs to be satisfied. There's another issue. When reasonable and logical answers are given, but dismissed with an answer that begins with something like, well, I just feel like, or I still feel that, it reveals that there's an emotional component in play. Because if the only issue is truth, the truth doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't care about popular opinion. Truth doesn't care if you find it offensive. It doesn't care if it's out of step with the culture. The truth is just the truth. It doesn't care if you like it any more than gravity cares if you like it. And this leads into the fourth question I raised. What does their response reveal about the current authority governing their life? Here's what I mean. When the intellectual side of things has been satisfied and addressed, but it's still not enough, it means that there's something more important than the intellectual side of the faith in that person's life. There's something more important to them than intellectual understanding. And most of the time, it is emotional. We've elevated our our feelings above intellectual truth. And we're now allowing our feelings to dictate and define what truth is. So when there's a clear, logical, rational, reasonable explanation, but we don't have the feeling that we want to have, we say, well, that's not good enough because we've elevated our feelings above truth. Our feelings are more important to us in that moment. When you dismiss good answers with things like, well, I feel like, or it just seems like, again, it's indicative that there's a feeling that you're looking for. And so you're not going to consider or take in any information until it gives you that feeling that you're looking for. And again, that's okay. That's your right. But you need to be honest about what you're looking for, and you need to be honest about what your issues are with the Christian faith so that you don't mislead yourself. It's really important for each of us to know and understand ourselves. What I'm suggesting to you is that while most people leave the Christian faith claiming they do so for intellectual reasons, I believe that asking these four questions will reveal that most people leave the Christian faith for other reasons. What might those reasons be? Well, as I said at the beginning of this message, people are complex, and everybody's story is is different. So I'm going to speak generally, I'm going to speak broadly about some of the reasons other than intellectual doubts that cause some people to leave the faith. Firstly, people leave the faith because a Christian, a group of Christians, or a church misrepresents Jesus. Everybody knows that Christianity presents Jesus as being perfect. He's wonderful. 
he's loving, he's kind, he's gracious, he's compassionate, and on and on and on we could go. And most people know that Christians are meant to be like Jesus. The Bible is clear that the Holy Spirit is working in Christians all the time to try and make us more like Jesus. And that's why it can be so devastating when someone hurts you and they claim to be a Christian. Sometimes the damage is egregious. There are people who grew up being sexually abused by a father or a relative who went to church every Sunday. There are people who were abused in the church by church volunteers. In other cases, the hurt is not as egregious, but it's still extremely painful. It's hurtful words. It's manipulation. People not being there for you when you thought they would. Not listening well when you needed someone to talk to. There are a million different ways that we're able to hurt one another. And in many cases, that hurt was so unexpected and so closely associated with the church and Christianity and Jesus that it all got lumped together and it all became repulsive to the person, causing them to naturally leave the faith because they've been hurt by something or someone that they consider so deeply connected to the faith. I want to say three quick things about this, if this has happened to you. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And he talked a bunch of other times about the fact that not everyone who claims to follow God is actually following God. There are some people who do things that make you say, I can't believe a Christian would do that. And sometimes Jesus says a Christian wouldn't do that. They're not a Christian, even though they claim to be. Always remember that anyone can do anything in the name of anyone. I could walk into a Tim Hortons, shoot a bunch of people, and claim that I'm doing it in your name. Does that mean that people should hate you? Does that mean it's your fault? Well, only if I had asked you to do that, right? But if I didn't, then they're just misrepresenting me. They're just misrepresenting you. You had nothing to do with what they did. So don't blame Jesus when people do things in his name or on his behalf that he never asked them to do. That's not fair, and you wouldn't want anyone to treat your reputation that way. Read his word, read the Bible, and discover for yourself what Jesus taught and how he instructed his followers to live. Then you can evaluate for yourself whether you actually agree or disagree with Jesus or whether people are misrepresenting Jesus. If we could get into a time machine, go back in time and visit, visit Isaac Newton. Imagine we're there and, and we get to meet him and we find out that Isaac's a total jerk. He's just a giant, awful human being. Would it make any sense for us to then say, you know, I uh, no longer believe in gravity because Isaac Newton discovered it and he's a jerk. I don't like Isaac Newton. Well, of course not, because our belief in gravity is based on the merits of the argument for gravity. It's got nothing to do with whether or not we like Isaac Newton. It is equally nonsensical to abandon the Christian faith because you encountered some Christians who suck at being Christians. It makes no sense. Christianity should be evaluated on the merits of the arguments for it being true. Now, secondly, another reason people deconstruct is just because we don't like being at odds with our culture. We don't like it. 
It's not easy having a belief system that puts you in philosophical conflict with the lifestyles of so many, with the lifestyles of your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. When it comes to sexual behavior, sexual identity, identity, gender identity, and, and, and many other enormous issues, Christianity teaches a view that our culture directly opposes, placing us at odds with our culture. Now, add to that the increasing extremism and militancy in our culture surrounding those issues, and things get even more awkward. For the Christian, we're commanded to love our neighbors and even do good and pray for our enemies. The Bible commands us to love those who are not Christians, pray for them, do good to them, while viewing their behavior as sin. But in our culture today, that's still not enough. You're a bigot. You're a homophobe. You're transphobic. Being at odds with the culture today might cost your business significant opportunities. It might damage your prospects for career advancement. It might cause you to be ostracized from certain social circles. There is increasingly a real price to pay for not marching to the beat of society. And for some, this tension, these conflicts are just simply too much. And they leave the faith rather than be viewed negatively, rather than be in conflict with the culture. Or they come up with a new version of God that does fit with the values of the culture. Two quick thoughts on this. You know, Christianity and the Bible make the claim that God is perfect. The scriptures teach that God never changes because from the beginning he was perfect, so he doesn't need to change. He doesn't need to adapt. He doesn't need to revise himself. He can't engage in self-improvement because he is perfect from the beginning. Now, if we're going to hold on to that belief, then inevitably there are going to be times in history when God's values do not align with the values of the culture because the values of culture change. They evolve. Now, if culture is changing and God is not changing, then there are going to be times of conflict between God's values and the culture's values. So think about this. If God's values were dictated by the culture's values, so if God's values changed, evolved to match the culture, then by definition, the culture would be God. Because the culture would be a higher authority than God. It would be the one telling God how he needs to change. And if your God changes their values based upon the culture, I would argue that it's completely self-evident that your God is merely a mirror reflection of your culture. In other words, they're just a fabrication. They're something you've invented in their own mind because they're just a mirror of your own values. Secondly, when you remake God to fit your culture or you abandon God's values in favor of the culture's values, you're making the assumption that whatever values are socially trendy right now, they are the best social values in existence. That's what you're actually claiming. You're assuming that we've never been more enlightened, more insightful, and more rational than we are right now. This is the peak. This is the absolute best of humanity. That is one heck of an assumption. That is one heck of an assumption. All you have to do to see the problem with that is take a look back at Nazi Germany. 
Most German citizens based their behavior and acceptance of the Third Reich on the assumption that the popular values of the culture at the time were the best social values in existence. What is good, what is right, what is true is not determined by popular vote. It is not determined by the culture. It is not determined by who is yelling their viewpoint the loudest. Truth is determined by examining the evidence and the arguments with a sober mind. For these reasons, I'm completely comfortable holding beliefs that do not conform to the current culture. And if we want to pursue truth with sincerity, we have to be more committed to the truth than we are to the approval of our culture and its current values. There's one more reason why I think people deconstruct. And I know that I'm not getting all the reasons. I'm just trying to hit a few primary ones. But this reason is, I think, the most important. One of the heaviest verses in the Bible is found in the third chapter of John, where John writes this. It's on your outlines. He says, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So what John is saying is he's saying, listen, guys, at the end of the day, the reason people don't choose to follow Jesus is because we love our sin and we don't want to give it up. Now, you might find that offensive. But John's telling the truth. At the end of the day, we want to live our lives in a way that is incompatible with the teachings of Jesus. I have a friend who I spent hours and hours talking with about Jesus. We did Bible studies. We prayed together. She listened to hours and hours of messages that I've taught, and and she loved all of it. Uh, But when I asked her what was holding her back from taking that next step of giving her life to Jesus, she told me plainly that she simply wasn't ready to make the changes in her life that she would need to in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus is very clear in the Bible about what it means to follow him. It means that he becomes your God. He becomes your master, your Lord. He calls the shots in your life, and his opinion becomes the only one that matters. Yours becomes irrelevant. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And for a lot of people, they're simply not interested in that deal. There are things they love that Jesus would call them to give up, and they don't want to do it. That's what John is talking about when he said, men loved darkness rather than light. If you're wrestling with your faith, if you have doubts, if you're deconstructing, I want to encourage you to honestly answer those four questions I raised and evaluate yourself. Determine what the real reasons are that are motivating your movement away from Christianity. Because no matter what, like I said, it is incredibly important that each of us know ourselves, that we understand what's driving us, what's motivating us, and and what are the issues that we need to confront within ourselves that we need to wrestle with. There's one observation I didn't really have a spot for, but I really wanted to share, so I'm going to do it. One of the things I hear people sharing a lot during their deconstruction goes something like this. They'll say, everybody believes they're right, so how can we possibly say that one view is right and another is wrong? 
I mean, everybody has different experiences and interprets things differently. Everybody says that they have evidence, they have good reasons. So, I mean, everyone essentially just believes what they want to believe. And the idea behind this type of thinking is subjective personal experience. It's the idea that my personal experiences should be allowed to determine what is true. And your personal experiences are all you need to determine what is true for you. That's why in our culture we call this my truth. I'm going to speak my truth. I'm glad you found your truth. This idea is so appealing because it allows us to believe that all views, all religions, all spiritual belief systems and cultures are equal, which is super politically correct and helps us avoid conflicting beliefs with our culture because we get to say, everybody's right. Everybody's right. The problem, the problem is that this idea is total nonsense. Again, stick with me if you're offended. And the fact that this idea is total nonsense becomes obvious when you compare the search for existential truth to the search for truth in a criminal trial. In a criminal trial, there's a prosecution and there's a defense. And there's a trial that takes place where the evidence for both sides is weighed. And then a verdict is reached by a judge who judges what was presented. And the same approach should be taken with philosophical truth. We all understand that it would not be a sound legal strategy to stand up at the beginning of a trial and say, this trial is a sham because who are you to say what I did is wrong? It was right to me. And who are you to even say that it happened? You you have your perspective. I have mine. We both have different views. We both have different feelings from our different perspectives. And they're both equally valid. So they're both true. I can be guilty and not guilty at the same time. So nothing should really happen to me. Now, we all know what would happen. The judge would bang his gavel. He'd tell you to shut up and explain that the evidence will be examined and the truth will be determined based upon the evidence because both sides cannot be simultaneously telling the truth. Right? That's what would happen in a criminal trial. Hear me on this. The claims of the world's religions are not mutually compatible. Specifically, The claims of Christianity are not compatible with any other religion or belief system. They cannot both be true at the same time. And so what do we need to do? The same thing we do in a criminal case. Weigh the evidence from both sides. Judge it and reach a verdict based on the evidence. So this whole idea that we can't know because everyone believes what they believe is true, this is nonsense. It does not mean that we cannot evaluate the evidence. That's exactly what we should do. Now, we've talked about the primary motivations behind deconstruction, and now I want to talk about ways that people can be set up for future deconstruction. So if these things are are present in a person's life, I think the odds of them deconstructing in the future are are significant. So let's work through these, and I'll say a little bit about each thing as we go. I try to put them all on your outlines. Firstly, the false teaching, so sermons, messages, Bible studies, etc., the false teaching that a blessed life is an easy life. In other words, there are people who teach, hey, if you put your faith in Jesus, life's going to be easy. You're not going to experience pain, disappointment, sickness. You're not going to experience job loss because everything you do is going to be blessed. 
God is going to make it smooth sailing for you. And as we said earlier, Jesus was very clear. There's a cost for following him, and he talked about it a lot. And the Christian life is still full of difficulty and and, and trials and, and pain and suffering. But when a person is told that that's not going to be the case, it creates this false expectation that inevitably leads to disappointment, which can set them up to deconstruct in the future. Secondly, the false teaching that that sin is not a major daily issue in the life of a believer. Listen, if, if a person doesn't understand that even as a Christian, we have to battle our sinful flesh on a daily basis, if they don't understand that all believers still battle sin and can still fall into sin, they're going to have an expectation of other believers that is unfairly and falsely high. And that's inevitably going to lead to disappointment. When you hear a person being crushed in their faith because a Christian sinned, it means the expectation was created that all Christians are just great and they're always going to be kind and loving and wonderful. But we need to understand that we're still battling our sin. We're still human right now. If we don't get that, we're set up for disappointment. Along the same lines, viewing pastors, teachers, and other ministry leaders as something more than human. Every ministry leader, including me, is just a person. Is just a person. We struggle with sin just like everyone else. We, we didn't get called into ministry because we're better than anyone else. We got called into ministry because God loves to use broken things so that he can get the glory. If your faith is too deeply connected to a person, you're in for disappointment because they will let you down. They will. I love, I love the church. I love the church. But listen to me, church. I will let you down sooner or later. I guarantee it. I hope you're blessed by what God does through me, through me but you need to know that the only one who's never going to disappoint you is Jesus. Everybody else will. Everybody else will. And when you realize that, you'll realize that the same thing's true about you. You're going to let everybody down sooner or later. So let's look to Jesus. Let's worship Jesus and let's give each other grace because we're not idolizing each other. We're idolizing Jesus. We're pursuing him. He's the one we're worshiping. Next, a lack of familiarity with popular arguments against the Christian faith. If you're raised in a sheltered Christian home and a a sheltered Christian church, you're not going to hear the attacks on Christianity that are rampant in our culture. And what happens then is that our kids go off to college or public high school, and, and they just get bombarded by all these questions, all these issues with the Christian faith, and it all hits them at the same time, and it seems like a tidal wave of reality is crashing down on them, drowning their faith. Kids need to hear about these intellectual challenges to the faith at church or from their parents long before they hear them from the culture. Why? It's not because they're going to remember all of those answers. They probably won't. But here's what it will do. They will have learned that there are good answers to these questions, and they'll know how to go and look for them, which means their faith isn't going to be shaken when they hear a good question. They're going to be able to say, oh, yeah, there's a good answer for that. I, I can't remember it right now, but let me go look it up and get back to you. But they're not going to flip out. Oh, I, I don't know. Christianity must be fake. 
Next thing that can set you up for deconstruction in the future, not being taught that doubts are okay. And some questions take time to find an answer to. None of us should settle for poor answers or weak explanations about Christianity, about the Bible, about anything like that. Doubts are okay as long as we're actively seeking the truth. And when you've found one good answer after another, your faith is built up so that it doesn't just disappear the next time you encounter a question that you can't immediately answer. I love what Chuck Smith used to, uh, I'm sorry, Chuck Missler used to encourage people to do. He would say, if you come up with a question you can't answer about the Bible or about faith, write it down, write down the date you wrote the question down and pray about it. He said, because I guarantee you that it might be days, weeks, months, might be years, but God will get you an answer. And when he does, you can go back, write it down. And as you do that over and over, it's going to build your faith because you'll begin to see the faithfulness of God as he works you through these questions. But there are some things that we cannot even understand till we've been through some experiences. And we need to learn to be comfortable with that. Even though debates and, and internet comment sections and college lectures can be places where people demand an answer right now or tell you that you have to answer on the spot, you don't. And a genuine pursuit of truth doesn't demand immediate answers. A genuine pursuit of truth takes time. It it takes research, it takes reading, it takes conversations and more questions. It takes as long as it takes. And so believers need to be taught that they don't owe anyone an immediate answer. As long as we're honestly going to do it, we can say, I'm going to need some time to research that because, because that's a really good question. I haven't thought about that. That's an interesting point. And churches need pastors and elders who are okay sometimes saying, You know, I don't know. I haven't really had a chance to research that to the degree that I need to. Or I I don't have an opinion yet because I haven't researched it enough. That's okay. We don't have to know everything right away. I think we also set people up for future failure by by making non-essentials of the faith into essentials of the faith. When I say essentials of the faith, I mean things that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. you got to believe Jesus is God you got to believe he's the only way to be saved. These things are essentials of the faith. But we can do a lot of harm by turning secondary issues into essentials. I'll just give you a couple of examples. I hope you know that believing in a literal six-day creation of the earth is not an essential of the faith. Now, I believe that, but it's not an essential. Believing in a young earth is not an essential of the faith. Even our eschatology, as much as I love it, our eschatology is not an essential of the faith. Someone doesn't believe in the rapture, doesn't mean they're not saved. We'll explain it to them on the way up. But it's not an essential of the faith. And some of these secondary issues require a lot of research. And there's a lot of different opinions. And there's no reason to set people up to question their whole faith just because they're wrestling with a secondary issue. So let's make sure we don't make non-essential issues into essential issues. Next one, not being taught how to study the Bible. There is an epidemic today of churches who do not teach the difficult parts of the Bible. They skip them over and instead just stick with the parts that are happy, clappy, and that everybody wants to hear. 
And when a church does that, people are not being taught how to study the Bible for themselves. They're not being taught through participation and observation and reinforcement, hey, there are good answers. There are good explanation for these challenging passages in the scripture. In fact, subconsciously, they're being taught that these passages are so difficult, we should just skip them because they're that problematic. Not even the pastor wants to talk about them. People in those churches are not learning and they're not learning how to learn for themselves, which leaves them wide open to just be crushed when somebody raises a difficult question about something in the Bible. We set people up for future deconstruction when we emphasize legalism instead of biblical grace. Listen, when every message in a church has three practical steps, three things you need to do, that's legalism. It's legalism. It's crushing. It's a works-based gospel that the Apostle Paul called no gospel at all. Because it's do, do, do. You must do this. Here's some more stuff to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But the gospel says it's done. It's done. We need that true gospel that focuses on what Jesus has done for us in our hopeless state and what the blood of Jesus continues to do for us every day. He didn't save us and then say, now do good works to keep your salvation. That's not the gospel. Believers need to understand that God's love for us does not change based upon our behavior. He does not love us because of anything we do or don't do. He loves us because of who he is and because he has made us his children. He loves us because of that relationship that he has brought us into. And the way we live our life is a response to that incredible grace. But legalism is crushing. It's crushing and it's sneaky. And it's in a lot of churches and a lot of messages today. I didn't fit this one on your outline because I thought of it at the last minute, but it's, it's really important. So scribble it in there for yourself. Raising our children to believe that sin isn't fun. Man, if you want to set your kids up, teach them that sin isn't fun, and that's why they shouldn't do it. The Bible is clear that sin is pleasurable for a season, but it's not fulfilling over the long haul. When we tell our kids that sin isn't fun, what do we think is going to happen when they find out that it is? They're going to want to do it more, and they're going to wonder why we lied to them, and they're going to wonder what else we lied to them about. And then lastly, the false teaching that feelings and emotions are reliable indicators of truth. Jeremiah 17.9 declares, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But we live in a culture that says, follow your heart, trust your heart. And when we allow our lives to be guided by our feelings and emotions, we make those things into our God. We make them into our God. We have to teach and we have to learn the lesson that our emotions lie to us all the time. They do not tell us the truth. And we should not allow them to be the arbiter, the judge of truth in our lives. That would be a terrible decision to make. A very simple recommendation is that you study apologetics. Read some books. Listen to some podcasts. I've put some links at the end of the outline that are worth checking out. Stretch yourself. Grow your understanding. Grow your vocabulary. Now, parents, I know we're going long, but this is some important stuff. I had to get this in here. Parents, I need to speak to you for a minute here. 
this is not the world that you and I grew up in. We did not face the kind of intellectual and philosophical challenges to our faith that our children are experiencing and will experience in high school, college, and university. It is our duty as parents to equip them for these challenges. And you can do that relatively easily by just reading some books to them. Read from them a few times a week at, at bedtime or, or gather them around at a certain time of the day. Some of the authors that I put at the outline write some books specifically aimed at kids. Elisa Childers, Jay Warner Wallace have books targeted at children. Pick some up, read them to your kids. And here's the great thing. Because they're children's books, adults can easily understand them too. And so they're great resources. You're going to learn a whole bunch from them. When there's a question that you should ask and you get that feeling, stop and ask it. When there's something that needs to be explained or a word, stop and explain it. If your kids ask a question and you don't know the answer, go research it. Go learn something. They're going to learn it too. Now, secondly, for parents, let me say this. You know, I used to have the opinion that most pastors have, which is like, hey, churches are, you know, different strokes for different folks. It's all good, all wonderful, all part of the family of God. Where you go doesn't really matter, but... That's not where I'm at. That's not where I'm at anymore as a pastor. If you're a parent, it is no longer okay, in my opinion, to go to whatever church your kids like, whatever church you just feel comfortable in. Those cannot be the primary factors in determining where you go to church. You don't have to go to our church, but you do have to have your family in a church that is actually teaching the Bible faithfully, including the difficult parts. You've got to get your family to a church that gives room for doubts and questions and doesn't dismiss them, but actually tries to engage them. You've got to get your family to a church that talks about the challenges to the Christian faith being raised by the culture. That stuff is not optional anymore. That's not something for just Christians who have a certain personality. This stuff is essential for families unless you want your kid's faith to be eaten for breakfast by the world as they move into those teenage years of life. If I'm scaring you, good, good. I hope it motivates you to address these issues and bless your kids with the understanding that they need to have. Let me encourage you, if you're deconstructing right now, question everything. Question everything. Pursue truth actively. And if you're doing that, I applaud you. If you're saying, I can't just believe because my parents believed, I applaud that. You shouldn't. You should pursue the truth for yourself, but doubt your doubts as well. Go back and forth, counter-argument to counter-argument until you've heard them all. Weigh the evidence and make decisions, judgments based on the evidence, not on how you feel. And if you're not motivated to pursue truth, ask yourself why. It is so important to know yourself and know what the actual issue is. Don't mislead yourself into thinking that the issue is intellectual if the real issue is, is maybe that you've been deeply hurt by somebody or something related to the church or that you just want to live your life a different way. And be gracious to the Christians in your life. Be gracious to them. They're bugging you because they love you. And to them, this is a life and death issue. And so when they ask you about it, when they talk to you about it, it's an expression of love from them. So be gracious to them. And then the last thing I would tell you if you're deconstructing is that you can follow Jesus and be broken. You can follow Jesus and have questions and have doubts. There's room at his table for that. Now, if you know someone 
who's deconstructing. Love them. Love them. Because they've closed a door that cannot be opened by you kicking it down. When the opportunity comes up, gently and graciously share the truth, but wait and pray for God to open that opportunity. Because if they've been deeply hurt by the church or someone in the church, they're not going to find the healing they need in the 12 evidences for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. As hard as it can be, because we love them, we don't know exactly what the issue is most of the time. We don't know what's really going on inside of them. They might not even know what's really going on inside of them. So pray for them. Trust them to the grace of God. And look for those opportunities, those little cracks in the door that God opens. Don't try and force the door open on your own. You know, I'm not a Christian because of personal experience. I'm not a Christian because it it works for me. I'm a Christian because I've weighed the evidence, I've examined the alternatives, and I've concluded that Christianity is true. I'm going to close with this. Viktor Frankl famously chronicled his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp in his seminal book, Man's Search for Meaning. Those experiences caused him to pioneer a realm of psychotherapy called logotherapy. And he came up with that term from the Greek word logos, which was a term used by ancient Greek philosophers for the ultimate meaning, the meaning of everything, the meaning of life. Logotherapy was Frankl's theory that human nature is primarily motivated by the search for meaning and the search for purpose. And so he set out to help people psychologically by helping them find meaning and purpose in their life. Now, in John chapter 1, around 1900 years before Viktor Frankl pioneered logotherapy, the apostle John wrote about Jesus and called him the Word. And when he wrote about Jesus, calling him the word in John chapter 1, John was writing in Greek, and the word that he used was not word. It was logos. He called Jesus the logos. Speaking of the meaning of life, the meaning of everything, the logos, this is what John said in John chapter 1. He said, in the beginning was the meaning of life, and the meaning of life was with God, And the meaning of life was God. All things were made through him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And the meaning of life became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The meaning of life the purpose of everything, the answer to everything, the logos is Jesus Christ. And if you pursue truth relentlessly, I believe that you will find Jesus, 
the logos at the end of your search. Would you bow your head, close your eyes, and pray with me? Father, thank you so much that you have shown us more than enough to know that you're true, to know that you're for us, to know that you're good, to know that your word is real and honest. And Father, thank you that you have shown us enough for us to be able to trust you through the unanswered questions. Lord, and for those of us who've been following you for a while, I know that you've shown us enough that we're at the place where if some questions never get answered till we get to meet you face to face, that's okay. You've shown us more than enough, and we trust you, Lord. And then, Father, for those of us who are wrestling with unanswered questions, we just lay them at your feet right now, and we trust them to you. And we ask that you would give us answers, Lord. We ask that you would give us revelation. But we will trust you with the timing, and we will trust you to give us those answers. And then, Lord, we pray for those who are doubting, for those who are seeking. Lord, would you help us to strengthen them? to encourage them, Lord, and to love them well in this time. Father, would you use us to reach them, and Lord, would you lead them to the truth that they are seeking? Would you reveal yourself to them? Father, we pray for healing for any who have been hurt by anyone claiming to be a believer, for anyone who's been hurt by us, for anyone who's been hurt by the church because we're human, Lord. Lord, forgive us where we've failed to represent you well. And God, give grace to those who are hurting that they may forgive as well and come to see the church not as the people who are in it, but as Jesus and broken people who are loved by Jesus trying to slowly become more like Jesus. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now, because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.